ministry partners. We were able to pay down some of the debt on the church. Uh, Another thing we're able to do is able to give this 20-year-old facility uh, a facelift. And so next week when you come, hopefully uh, there will be new carpet in the lobby. Um, There will also be an area out there around the cafe that's actually polished concrete. Um, And we will begin the process in the weeks ahead of painting the sanctuary, replacing carpet in here, doing a number of things to do a facelift. So in stages, you're going to see changes taking place. And I say all of that to uh, say today, after the second service, we have to move everything out of the offices uh, in the back, the conference room and offices. So if there are any able-bodied women that could help us with that, (laughs) uh, we would really appreciate it. Um, we, uh, I believe we have to get every stick of furniture uh, out of there. And, uh, and so there's a, there's a lot of stuff to move. We're going to bring it into the sanctuary. We'll also have to get everything out of the lobby as well, uh, because tomorrow morning they start tearing up, uh, carpet and some things like that. So, uh, anybody able to help us? Otherwise, Tim's going to be here till like six, seven o'clock, you know, doing this. So if you can hang out and uh, help us, we would really appreciate it. Um, Pray with me, if you would. Father, we come to uh, this worship service, we call it. It's really an opportunity for us to engage and talk to you and sing praise to you and reflect together about who you are, what you do. And uh, we're always challenged, Lord, when it comes to doing this. We're distracted easily. Um, We have challenges in our life that... Keep us from probably seeing you rightly, correctly. And that's one of the reasons that we come to this place and gather, because we know that you'll meet us here. Even if it is only once a week, you, you meet us here and you comfort and encourage and challenge and convict and do all those things. We pray that you would do that again in our midst this morning. We're thankful, God, that so many were able to get out this morning and join us safely and pray even after this service people could get home safely. We just have a lot for which to be thankful. Thank you for being here among us. Teach us now as we reflect on your word. Bring glory to your son, Jesus. For we ask these things in his name. Amen? Amen. Well, the Psalms are so interesting. As you know, David wrote many of them. Uh, David wrote this in Psalm 119. He says, seven times a day. I praise you for your righteous laws. Seven times a day. He's trying to practice a rhythm of constantly uh, being thankful and giving praise. Psalm 34 says, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. Interesting. Wow. Okay. Uh, In Psalm 150, David really gets carried away. He writes this. He says, praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and the lyre. Praise him with tambourine and dancing. He's definitely not Presbyterian. Praise him with the strings and flute. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, he says. Is that easy for you to relate to? He kind of gets carried away there, doesn't he? With just giving God praise and adoration. It's interesting, the Apostle Paul, he was church planting 
And uh, in Acts 16, he's, he's been preaching the gospel, and he and Silas, his partner, have been arrested. They've been beaten with rods. Hard for me to even imagine what that would be like. They've been put in the inner prison. Their feet are locked in stocks. And Acts 16.25 tells us that we find them praying and singing hymns of praise to God. It's remarkable, given their circumstances. Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica, and he says this, Be joyful always. Pray continually, he says. In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You think he really means that? (laughs) That's the kind of thing you say in church, but you think he really means that? I mean, I'm supposed to praise God and give thanks to him for every trial and every tragedy, every challenge, every difficulty, every circumstance. In other words, I'm supposed to be a worshiper of God regardless of my circumstances. And then Peter, he piles on too on this. 1 Peter 4, he says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial that you are suffering. We sort of know some of the context here. Peter's probably writing to a group of individuals that have been scattered from their homes. They're experiencing persecution. That means they've had to have left loved ones. Uh, They've certainly left businesses, whatever it was, whatever means of support they had. And, and, uh, And so they've experienced some very, very serious trials. And Peter says, dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. This is not strange. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. James, the brother of Jesus, adds to this discussion. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. This is pretty remarkable language, really. Amazing. Be joyful. Be worshipful. Give praise continually regardless your circumstances. Now, the question that comes to mind is, how? (laughs) That's great for you to say, how? How am I supposed to do that? You know, so far we've entered into a little series. This is our third week in a series on, on worship. And up to this point, we've primarily been focused on public Worship. We've talked about the importance of worship to God, both in the Old Covenant and the New. And we've talked about how important your worship and my worship is as we bring uh, praise and adoration and thanks and, and uh, gratitude to God. We've talked about why we do the things that we do in a worship service. But as you know, there's another important side of worship that is vitally important. And that is this thing that we would call private worship as opposed to public worship. And I'm not going to say a lot about this, but I probably do need to say at least a couple of things. And that is that good public worship, attitudes of rejoicing, giving praise, being thankful, offering up worship, are only possible to the extent that we're experiencing some kind of consistent, healthy, private rhythms of worship in our life. Uh, I've told this story before. I'm going to tell it again because I think it's funny and I like it. Tony Campolo tells about the guy who comes to a worship service every week. He's rather enthusiastic in it. Every single week he stands up in the middle of the service somewhere and he just says, fill me, Jesus, fill me, fill me, Jesus. And he would pray that. uh, And then he would go away at the end of the service. And during the week, you know, Monday to Saturday, 
lives like he's never even heard of Jesus. And he treats people very badly, deceives people, treats them harshly. He's greedy, he's selfish, and so But every week he's there in the service, fill me, Jesus, fill me. And one Sunday he comes, and finally there's a lady there who's also there faithfully every Sunday, and she gets a little tired of this. She knows what he's like during the week. And so when he stands up and he starts yelling, fill me, Jesus, fill me, she stands up too, and she says, don't fill him, Jesus, don't do it. He leaks. And here's the problem when it comes to worship. You see, reliance solely on times of public or corporate worship, something that takes place in a rhythm of once a week, is not enough. Why? Because we leak. That's the problem. We leak. (laughs) The... uh, you, you may walk out of here uh, on any given Sunday and, and maybe you have strong emotions, perhaps even convictions uh, because of something that's been said or shared or sung or done in a worship service. Maybe you have an authentic sorrow over your sin and an honest commitment to trust God, a sincere desire to follow him. But those things do have a way with time of leaking out of us. We live in a world that constantly sends messages that kind of promote the leakage a little bit. We live in a world that tells us, you know what, you only matter if everyone likes you. You understand that, right? Or you only matter if you look a certain way. Or you only matter if you uh, meet your sales goals or you get certain grades in school or you're smart or you're rich or your children succeed or you achieve more and more and more and more. You only matter if. And hearing those messages all day long affect us deeply. Because of the brokenness that's already in us. Those messages, you know, if you're succeeding in some of them, they make you very proud. Or if you're failing, they make you very insecure. They can make you angry. They can make you lonely. They can cause you to be depressed. Why? Well, because all those messages are inviting us to worship false gods. The God of popularity or the God of good looks or the God of financial success or uh, power or perfect parenting or the God of achievement and these are all gods that use and abuse us and when they're finished they leave us absolutely empty absolutely empty only when we become devoted worshipers of Jesus in our everyday life only when we learn to hold God before our minds in such a way as using certain rhythms that we become genuinely convinced that God is good and God is great And God actually loves me and forgives me. And it is God who defines me. Only when I see that there is no end to his goodness and his greatness, only then do I see and trust his purposes with my life, you see. Only then do I believe, no, his going his way really is the right way for me, regardless And when I know that deeply and I know that daily and I rehearse that truth, then my life becomes an act of worship. My life, just living out my life becomes an act of worship. And I would say that's God's plan for you. That is God's plan for me, for us to grow in the knowledge that I'm I'm made to be a worshiper and everything I do can give him honor and give him glory. And I am made for this thing of worship. Now, interestingly, that that sounds like something you'd say in church. sounds like something we all ought to affirm. But in reality, you know, does it really work? Has there anybody really ever been able to do this? And the the reality is, uh, I remember David said in Psalm 34, he said, I will extol the Lord at all times. If you know anything about David's life, it had a few ups and downs in it, right? 
I think murder was one of his problems. But anyway, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. David was a learner in this process of what it means to be a worshiper. I love what the writer of Hebrews says. Through Jesus, and that's the key. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. It's a beautiful expression. The sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. Through Jesus, we can do this. You see, these words were written by real people living in the real world, people just like us. They discovered that it is possible to live life through Jesus and to become continual, private, as well as public worshipers. That's really the direction we want to move. It's one of the reasons we're in this series. Now, I admit, this, <coughs> this always takes some energy, always takes some time, always takes discipline on our part, if you will. The Holy Spirit even helps us in that process. We couldn't do it otherwise. For example, uh, none of this can really happen unless I set aside some time each day somewhere to meet with God, to talk with God, to listen to God, to reflect on and to consider who God is. Another reason we know this is true is Jesus himself did this. Jesus would have these rhythms in his life where he would meet with, listen to, talk to the Heavenly Father. This is how we develop a relationship, of course, with our Heavenly Father and deepen that relationship. Jesus' followers have, since Jesus' time, developed habits of using the Scriptures to read and and to reflect on in ways that actually change us. And that's reading, of course, that's not so much like reading a newspaper for information. There's nothing really wrong with that, but if that's the only way you ever interact with God's words or you read it just for information, you're, you're, you're probably not getting the most out of it. To read it more really like a letter, or you could even say a love letter, uh, slowly, maybe repeatedly, thoughtfully, uh, kind of like this. Uh, there's a passage that <clears throat> I've read and uh, one that I really like in First in, in John. First John uses, John himself, the Apostle John, uses some interesting language sometimes. Even his, his gospel starts so differently than the other gospels. But here when he's writing this little epistle, uh, he says this. He says, this is the message we have heard from him, from Jesus, and declare to you. Now, what do you think he's going to say? Because he's going to summarize the message of Jesus. Okay, Jesus said a lot of things, a lot of different ways. But what, what do you think he's going to say that summarizes for us, the message of Jesus. I, I bet he says something you wouldn't expect him to say. This is what he says. He says that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. That would be the summary that the Apostle John gives of the life and ministry and teaching of Jesus. He kind of nutshells it for us, you see. And that's one of those statements that if you don't stop and reflect on it, you probably are not going to understand it. You're going to blow right by it. But it's actually something very deep and very rich. You know the primary problem in the garden for Adam and Eve as to why they listened to the evil one and and decided to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? It was a suspicion that they had. It was a suspicion that God really wasn't maybe that good. That God really wasn't all light. That there was something he was withholding from them. Do you know that that's your problem and my problem too? Even people who follow Jesus, we really struggle to believe that God is all light. All good, you see. And, and so what a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful way for, for Jesus to have summarized his message and his teaching and the coming of, of his kingdom, that God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. That's one of those statements you have to reflect on. You know, I think of the darkness that's in me 
the darkness that's in the world around me, the darkness that's in people that I know. And I wonder, what if there's a dark side to God? What if he's severe? What if he's deceptive? What if he's less than honest? What if he's uncaring? What if God is uncompassionate? What if God is unforgiving? What if, what if God holds a grudge? But it's into my suspicions that Jesus comes and both speaks into and demonstrates the truth. He says, folks, this is my message. God, my Father, is light, and in him there is no darkness. That means no deceit and no trickery, no arrogance, no coldness, no callousness. God is just light, just goodness, just beauty. And so, you know, it's when I reflect on passages of Scripture like that and sit long enough with it that it starts to shape and change my thinking. And I say, God, I can, I can hardly take that in. That, that is such incredible good news when I think about it. That fills me with so much hope that you are light and in you there is no darkness. Father, I can put my life in your hands knowing that that's true. And it's in my private worship is the point that I'm trying to make that I linger over things like that. Sometimes in public worship too, yes, but to linger over a text like that and let it affect me. As I do that, I get to know my Heavenly Father much better. I get to know and appreciate and love my Savior Jesus much more. And I get to literally experience the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in me as he helps me understand a text like that. You see, until I become convinced that there is no end to God's goodness and God's perfections, that's the kind of thing that a Christ follower does in his or her private times of worship. You slow down from other things that you're doing. You, you talk to God. You listen. You wrestle to understand Scripture, and you reflect on it. And that's one of the key, maybe the primary way that, that in our private worship we experience transformation. Now, there, there are other things that you can use in private worship. A lot of you do this. Uh, another thing that a lot of people use in private worship is nature. I mean, nature can easily lead you into worshiping God the Creator. The Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. question is always, as they declare it, and my goodness, is this morning an opportunity for declaring the glory of God? The beauty that we see around us, it's so interesting to me that God can so easily just grind everything to a halt. Now, he didn't halt you from getting here. He halted a lot of people from getting here in the first service. A lot of people, okay? And he can do this in an instant. And he can also paint a picture with this beautiful snow of, of the purity and the greatness and the goodness of the forgiveness of sin as opposed to our sins, which are like scarlet. I mean, God is... Nature uh, calls us to worship God, and always the question, are we listening? Do we look at it and let nature draw us to places of praise? My wife is somebody who really uh, is a great worshiper in the context of nature. Holly will take walks. She'll use those walks for times of prayer. She always comes back, and she's excited about something she saw, some bird, something that was crawling or walking and so on. Uh, you know, I tend to, when I walk, oh, this is a good time to process. And, you know, I'll, I'll even be walking, kind of looking down as opposed to, you know, walking like this. And, and I have to remind myself, let nature call me to places of worship. For her, it's a, a lot more 
uh, just kind of how she's sewn up and, and how she thinks and so. But nature is a great uh, thing that can be used in our private worship. You can use people to stimulate your private worship. I read a book one time that challenged me to do something I'd never thought of doing. It's really hard to do. I've tried to do this a couple of times. And that is enter into a day where you let people call you to worship. Everyone with whom you shake hands, have a conversation, or interact with, use that as an opportunity to say, Lord, thank you for this person, this person who's serving me, this person who's speaking truth into my life, this person who's following you, this person who needs to know you, and you use that as an opportunity to pray for them, to worship God for his activity in their life, for what is being displayed about him in their life, and you try to do that all day long. It's a pretty interesting discipline, and, and, but it turns your whole day of encounters with people in terms of thank you God for the person that just cut me off in traffic and they're, they're testing my patience and you know they're helping me grow in sanctification thank you God for my spouse who just told me something about myself I don't really want to hear but probably need to hear you, you see how that works turning everything into an opportunity to worship just because of who you encounter uh, there are other ways to enter into private worship other places some people use their car as a sanctuary anybody here do that yeah, uh, others will get dressed in their car. They'll put on makeup in their car. They'll finish all their texts in a car. Stay away from them. Very dangerous people. But, but worshiping is probably okay where you sing and you praise and you pray in your car. Some people, that's their holy moment. They have a half-hour drive to, to work or maybe longer, maybe a little less. But they, they utilize that space and that time for private worship. It's a good thing to do. There's a woman in Luke chapter 2, verse 37. Her name is Anna, and we're told that she is a prophetess of great age. And <clears throat> we're told that <clears throat> she was married early on. Her husband died, and uh, she's now uh, 84 years old. And Luke says this about her. He says, she never left the temple, but worshiped there with fasting and prayer night and day. She's a night and day worshiper. Well, here's the deal. We can be that too because understand in the relationship that we have with the Father now, we are actually the temple of the Holy Spirit, the temple of God. And that means the Spirit dwells within us. The Spirit prompts our worship. The Spirit in anything you're doing, plumbing, electricing, I don't know the right word for that, you know, uh, parenting, whatever it is, whatever you do, that can become, as you do it unto the Lord, uh, an act of worship. And we can worship him night and day as we work, as we parent, as we live, as we do life with him. And here's the deal. As we get better and better at private worship, we will also become better and better at public worship together. And it's my prayer and it's my hope that by the time we finish our little series on worship, more of us will be afflicted with the same kind of disease that we see David and Peter and James and so, you know, being afflicted with. And I'll tell you what their disease was. Their disease was they had a very, very, very big picture of God. Big vision of God. And because of that, you see, uh, their faith could not be casual. A lot of times, we talked about this the first week in this series, that when it comes to worship or giving worship to God, recognizing that all that we do is supposed to give Him honor and give Him glory, we just miss it. And largely that's because our vision of God is too small, and therefore we're not really worshipers. We're, in fact, worship the whole set. We're kind of just casual about that, you know. Whether it's public worship or whether it's private worship, we're just too casual. Oh, I'll do it if I can. I'll do it if I feel like it. 
What kind of priority is it? Not that big a priority. Very casual. You see, to have a really big vision of God, that's what changes that. And you, but you need to develop a, a growing awareness of two things about God. Uh, of God's, number one, his intrinsic worship, you know, who he is. You can drop these terms at your next uh, small group meeting and sound very, you know, like you know something. Or God's extrinsic worship, what he does. Two really important aspects of who God is. Most believers are easily motivated to uh, worship and to praise God for extrinsic reasons. You know, reasons like our, our salvation. That's a pretty good reason to worship. Or blessings that we experience. Answers to prayer for family that we love. Or church extended family that, that care for us. Or speaking through our lives. Or, or friends or what have you. Children, what have you. These things should rightly motivate us to want to worship. Worship is... The, the, the least that we should offer back to God for all of his extrinsic blessings. He is worthy of our worship for everything that he does. And we'll be talking a little more about that aspect of God in a moment, but the question I want to ask you is, how often are you moved to worship God for reasons other than these extrinsic reasons? If you're like me, the answer is not enough. Or you're just motivated because of who God is to give him worship the... Uh, author uh, of Psalm 104 says, Praise the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. Psalm 105, glory in his holy name. The point is, worship him because of who he is. Intrinsic worship of God. It's nothing he's done or going to do. It's just worship because in himself... God is worthy of my worship. We human beings have a derived worship. Our value is given to us, you see, by God, by our maker. Psalm 103 says, know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. God said, you are important because I made you. And I've made you in my image and in my likeness. You reflect my glory. And what is more, he not only demonstrates but states over and over and over, I've entered into covenant with you. I love you. You see, our value is derived because of our association with the God who has all of this intrinsic value. Just It's who he is. If you think about it, everything in the universe has a derived value. Everything. Only God has intrinsic value, and because of this, he is worthy, and I should say he alone is worthy of our worship. Nothing else is. In Exodus 19, we get a kind of a peek at God's intrinsic worship. Um, it's a little window into his glory, <coughs> excuse me, into his majesty. The context of this passage is we find all of Israel camped at the base of Mount Sinai. And Moses is having a conversation with God, and, and God is, as I said, getting ready to give the, the uh, Ten Commandments. And, and uh, God calls Moses up to have this conversation and says, I want to meet with the people here at the mountain. And he gives him all kinds of uh, things that the, he needs the people to do before he comes to, to meet with them there at Sinai. He has the people consecrate themselves and, and prepare, in other words, for this meeting. In Exodus chapter 19, starting in verse 14, I want to read you some verses. Try to imagine yourself. You know, you, your camp is off over here. 
uh, a little distance, a short distance from Mount Sinai. And then there is this, this mountain where Moses goes to, to to meet with God and converse with God. <clears throat> and this is what we read in verse 14. It says, After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them, and they washed their clothes. And then he said to the people, Prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. These are not Israelites blowing trumpets, as you'll see in a moment. This is God blowing the trumpet, so to speak. Everyone in the camp trembled. Wouldn't you be? And then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed, can you picture it? Billowed up from it like a smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. I'm sure somebody there said, you know, worship this morning was way too loud. Is there any way to turn that down? You know, just got louder and louder. And then, and then Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. And the Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain as well. Now understand, we frankly read that, we can envision that, but we probably misunderstand what we're being taught or told in this text. Because understand, in all of the thunder and the lightning and the fire and the smoke and the ever-increasing loud trumpet sound and the violent trembling and quaking, God really was not trying hard to impress the people of Israel. He was not pulling out all the stops to really give them a show. He wasn't ramping up his power to wow the people. In fact, God was veiling his majesty. Think about this. In his grace, he was hiding his glory behind the smoke and the clouds and the fire. He was affording his people an opportunity to see, if you will, for lack of a better way of putting it, a sliver of his splendor without perishing, you see. That's what he's doing here. You see, if he had totally unveiled his majesty, no sinful human being could have been there in his presence. No creature, not any creature, probably no planet could survive that kind of an encounter with this kind of a God. So, how majestic is he? (laughs) How intrinsically worthy of worship is he? You really can't overstate it. You know, it's interesting. Remember the time when Jesus was entering into Jerusalem, this is the triumphal entry, and the people are crying out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, you know, peace in heaven and glory to, uh, to him in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd are really offended by what they hear some of Jesus' followers saying about Jesus as he enters into Jerusalem. They say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. This is blasphemy. Do you hear what they're saying? And you remember what Jesus says? He says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, The stones will cry out. The point is, the Pharisees were totally missing the glory of God. I mean, the anointed Messiah, 
the unique one and only son of almighty God is right there and they were completely missing his glory. They missed his intrinsic worship. And truly in Jesus coming to earth, you know, that glory is veiled, but at times it was revealed. This was one of them. He's, he's entering Jerusalem He's coming to lay down his life to take the whole redemptive purpose of God a giant step forward. And there were people there criticizing him. Unable, unwilling to see the glory of what is unfolding. And you know the truth about us is too, we, we miss this all the time. I'm ashamed to admit, I think far too little about who God is or what he's really like. I think far too little, in other words, about God's intrinsic worthship. Maybe some of you wrestle with that. One of the things that I appreciate a great deal uh, is a reading plan that I use. It's called the Moravian Text. It's just an uh, annual reading plan. And one of the things it does is it keeps you in the Psalms every day. You know, the Psalms are one book of the Bible that are designed to help us appreciate the intrinsic worth of God. Because over and over and over, it points us to his greatness, his goodness, and his character and so on. I'm thankful for passages like the one we just read in, in Exodus 19 that give us a little glimpse. It's a slender slice, but it's a little glimpse of God's true intrinsic worship. I, I need that. Otherwise, I tend to miss it. Passages that make us stop and think about the kind of God we follow. But here's something that just causes me to marvel. I don't know. You know, it's one thing to be a real powerhouse, which God certainly is. It's nothing for him to do smoke and, and clouds and fire and, you know, trumpet blasts. It's one thing to have all the power in the universe at your fingertips. That's immensely impressive. But the thing that truly amazes me is how God chooses to use his power. Over and over and over again, we see this powerful, majestic God using his power on behalf of sinful, rebellious creatures like me, like you. And it's here that we start now really talking about the extrinsic worship of God. It's here that we begin to worship God for what he does because it so surprises us. The gospel surprises us. God's redemptive intent surprises us. It's not what we deserve. It's not what we merit. It's desperately what we need. We need somebody to rescue us. Now, obviously, we don't have time to talk about <clears throat> everything that God does. I mean, the list is endless. He creates. He sustains. He, he provides. He redeems. He punishes and restrains evil. He strengthens the weak. He gives wisdom. He gives guidance. He answers prayer. And the list just goes on and on and on and on. It's, a, it's amazing, really, that any of us are here this morning. Now, when I was writing these words and thinking about you know, our time together this morning, I wasn't really thinking at all about there being a blizzard. So I don't mean that it's amazing that any of us are here this morning because of snow. I was thinking more along these lines. You know, you know how many people around our planet die in childhood? That's a frighteningly high percentage, people who just perish in childhood. Do you know how many die in wars? There's wars going on right now. People are dying even as we speak. 
Do you know how many die in auto accidents? Do you know how many die in natural disasters? How many die as victims of violent crimes? How many die from the disease that's rampant in this fallen, broken, evil world that we live in? I mean, so many. But here's the amazing thing. None of us have yet. Why is that? Why haven't we? The only answer I could give to that question is because in God's gracious providence, he has sustained us. He has kept us alive. He keeps giving us the very breath that we breathe. Question, who gave you that breath of air that you just took? We take them one after another, after another, after another. Rarely do we ever think about who gives it to us. Who causes something like, I don't know, photosynthesis to happen so that there's oxygen for us to breathe, so that there's plant life and energy for us to absorb and and grow from? What's the force behind gravity? Who keeps the planets and the stars in motion? What keeps the human heart beating? Who orders the orbits of protons, neutrons, and electrons? Who does all this? It's interesting. The Apostle Paul says Jesus does. In the letter that he wrote to the church at Colossae, he said, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Who sees to it that you and I have food and clothing and shelter? I look around this congregation, it doesn't look like any of us are suffering in, in those three categories. How grateful should we be as worshipers for all of the extrinsic blessings that flow our way from salvation to nutrition, you name it, everything, and everything in between comes our way because of God. Jesus said this one time. He said, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Apparently, you're one of the few. How did you find it? Is it because you're so clever? (laughs) You're so smart? Or is it because God has worked in your life to call you and lovingly sustain you and open your eyes and woo you as one of his children, shouldn't our hearts be filled with worship for a God that sustains us so well? James, the brother of Jesus, said every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows, God has extrinsic worship because of what he does. And here's the thing, all that he does is good. It is so incredibly good. And you know, I could go on as you well know, and on and on, reminding you of God's uh, working extrinsically you know, in our lives, all of the things he blesses us with. But I thought what we would do is uh, we would take some time, I don't know, 10 minutes or so maybe, and we'll see what happens here, and, and let you give praise and thanks and worship to God for some of the things that he is doing or has done in your life. Now when we do this, this is always fun and risky because you never know uh, what's going to happen. But maybe uh, as you sit there even now and think, um, is there something for which you ought to give praise, public praise and public worship to God for his working uh, in your life? If so, 
stand up and be counted, and we'll run a microphone to you, and you can share it with the, the larger body here. Anybody? Anybody?